Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to ModPath Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a new episode of Mod Pass Chat. Our guests today are two distinguished leaders in the space of digital and computational pathology. It's my great pleasure to be joined by Vipul Baxi, Senior Scientific Director of Digital Pathology at Bristol Myers Squibbs, and Michael Montalto, Chief Scientific Officer at Path AI. I look forward to hearing their thoughts on the promise of digital path and AI, and I'm sure the many challenges and opportunities that lay ahead. I refer you to their comprehensive open access recent review on the topic that was published in Modern Pathology. All authors' conflict of interest are listed in that manuscript. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Neto. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for, uh, thanks for having us. Thank you, Dr. Neto. Yep, absolutely. A pleasure. I, I really appreciate your taking the time, and uh, uh, this is uh, a, a great uh, review uh, for those who are interested in learning more and more about uh, the technology and, and how it works. And uh, you, lay, uh, you, you start your review by, by uh, uh, explaining how really we're undergoing a revolutionary transition in our fields from a qualitative, uh, semi-quantitative at best, uh, our human eye, uh, the stuff that I and many, uh, many in our field grew up with, uh, to uh, this, what's been dubbed the third revolution in pathology, we're moving really more precise, more quantitative, uh, with the help of uh, whole slide imaging and, and uh, tools, uh, computational past tools like AI. So uh, uh, with that in mind, maybe it's a good idea uh, to, to start with uh, what you beautifully depict in one of your figures, uh, which is the workflow of, uh, of a digital pathology when you're looking at a prognostic uh, marker or biomarker. So uh, you guys can decide who want to talk about what, and uh, let's make it. <laughs> Vipal, 
maybe I'll let you start with that one. Sure. I think that was the figure you put together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. again, uh, I think we've uh, we've definitely put in a lot of effort to put together this workflow that really allows us to quickly develop test, train uh, algorithms and, and scale these algorithms. Um, so, you know, the way I've uh, sort of bucketed it into these three three categories uh, for any digital pathology algorithm development effort, um, it all starts with having the right samples, having the right blocks, um, focusing on the particular stain of interest. It could be a standard H&E or a immunohistochemistry stain or a multiplex uh, 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 chromogenic or IF stain, but essentially starts with uh, having the right samples, having the uh, right representation of the phenotype that you're looking for in these samples um, to to help train this. So if uh, you're developing a simple tumor stroma algorithm or a cancer tumor cell detection algorithm, uh, it starts with having uh, uh, having the right sample sets to to train these models, um, and so that's that's the sample preparation piece uh, and having your gold ground truth or your gold standard. Which in our case, a lot of the algorithms that we develop are our path- uh, pathologists are our ground truth, um, and so identifying what that ground truth is and generating that ground truth, so that when you develop your algorithms, it uh, you can always compare it back to a a ground truth here, um, and then comes the the digital pathology piece, um, which is which is comprised of two things. It's the imaging piece and then the image analysis piece. So imaging, um, depending on the, the type of detection you're looking at, either a bright field uh, um, a whole slice scanner or a immunofluorescence uh, multispectral scanner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, ha- and there are multiple of, uh, multiple types of these scanners in the field um, that, you, that you can use. Um, uh, and then the, uh, the second piece is the image analysis piece. So developing these algorithms classify, so we can use standard uh, image analysis techniques that we define the type of uh, morphology of cells that we're trying to identify or using some of the more advanced machine learning at AI uh, approaches to train these based off of a lot of labeled data that we can get from pathologists um, to, to train these models. And then the last piece is uh, how do we then deploy this in a, in a scalable format? So, so once these algorithms are developed, validated, uh, the, these can be packaged and deployed across large cohorts within almost a matter of uh, minutes, if, um, if, if not faster, and, and you can generate um, you know, high quality data minutes. pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, well, oh. for, for a single slide, <laughs> yeah, you can, oh, okay. you can yeah. run this uh, within within a minute. Um, so imagine, you know, a thousand thousand samples. It can take uh, pathologists, you know, numbers of days <laughs> to generate it. Uh, Say a month. Yeah. <laughs> An algorithm can do it pretty quickly. Um, so, th- so that's it's the deployment of the the algorithm across a large cohort, and then all the downstream data analysis, the bioinformatics piece um, of, of looking at efficacy to outcome, looking at correlation with other uh, molecular data or genomic data. Uh, and so you can you, you can really expand the, the research with the quantitative data that you get here. So that's really the three buckets of uh, the workflow that we that we have developed. Beautiful. So, so simply we have sample prep and I like what you say, the ground truth. And for at least for the time being, the pathologist's opinion remains the ground truth. Uh, hopefully uh, not before I retire, that, that will always uh, be the case till I retire. And then the second part is the, the imaging system, including the scanning and image analysis. And then the third bucket is the bioinformatics, uh, the stuff that 
for most of us is is uh, is beyond our uh, our uh, uh, not intelligence but base of knowledge and training that we've had. So wonderful, and that's uh, that's 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 a great start. So uh, clearly. While there is multitude of applications, you mentioned even uh, you know uh, HNE standard HNE, and I'm always amazed by now you call them computational biomarkers that just you extract from HNE that the human eye has was not able uh, to detect. Uh, but we'll leave that for another day, and maybe today we focus on. Uh, clearly, where we all hope it will help us a lot is IHC, be it, uh, you know, like you said, chromogenic, monoplex, multiplex, or spatial. Can you, can you say a few words about that, uh, both of you? What are the challenges and, uh, and opportunities? And how realistic or my worry when, when we talk about digital uh, and computational is, is uh, people feel we're talking about it, but really, are we using it yet? And, and uh, hopefully that, that will come fast enough to validate this, this excitement, because a lot of time you, you're familiar with that in the field, a lot of excitement around uh, something new that uh, fizzles down the road. We're pretty sure that this is not going to fizzle. This is a true revolution. But can you tell us what should we expect, timelines, uh, challenges, uh, where, where do we head with both of you being such leaders uh, in the industry and interacting a lot with uh, academics, uh, yeah. places, and, and investigators like, uh, uh, like uh, other pathologists do? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I, I think the question is when... Um, when can we expect this to, to reach clinical practice maybe and impact, you know, patient decisions, which is really what pathology is all about at the end of the day. So, I mean, there's, there's almost, uh, unfortunately, there's not a simple answer to that. I mean, some, I think some would say it's there today. So there are, there are institutions like the great work that's happening at, uh, at Ohio state and UPMC and other places across the, the, the country where the investments have been made and digital pathology is being established and, uh, people are starting to use it in their everyday practice for various different reasons, whether it's improving workflows, uh, primarily probably in working for workflows and efficiencies. Um, and that now we're seeing AI-based algorithms like the Page AI prostate uh, tool that was recently uh, cleared by the FDA to potentially be used in, um, in screening for uh, prostate cancer. So those are available today. They're not necessarily, I think your question is a good one in that when will, when will it be widespread use and when will everybody be using it? And I think that's, that's still uh, an open question. I, I still think that the industry is struggling a little bit with how, how will this technology best serve patients in the end of the, in the end of the day, you talked a little bit about IHC as an example, where we know there's a lot of inner reader variability for things like tumor or uh, immune cell scoring for PDL1. I think David Rim just had a great paper recently in JAMA Oncology about HER2 low and the challenges at HER2 low, and we're seeing drugs approved for that indication. So, will patients be accurately classified with um, you know IHC tests that are coming out more recently, like PDL1 or like HER2 low? Um, and I think we've got data that suggests that not, not really, that that inter-reader variability is going to present a challenge in terms of uh, meeting uh, patients' demands, you know, meet, meeting uh, the, the right sort of therapeutic approaches for these patients. So one could imagine that um, the, the, a test could be available for an AI-based test to classify patients for IHC for these new therapeutics that are coming around. Um, and that would be better to better serve those patients. How is that going to happen? I think this is a good question. And I, and Vipolis, we can talk a little bit about this and 
Dr. Neto, you can weigh in on this as well. Will, in the way IHC is very routinely used across many different labs, will we expect AI to be used in the same way? Or would we expect it to be used more in the way that NGS is being used, which is in major testing centers with a send out mm-hmm. model where you're still, where, where clinical decisions are still being made, but not every lab in the country or globally is able to run an NGS test because the technology is expensive. It requires very exactly. sophisticated knowledge. So I think we're- And we're, a significant we're, investment. I mean, we're- Significant investment, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. So I even think in a big it. academic center yeah. like UAB, it's, uh, it's yeah. not something we just decide overnight. That's right. Invest. I think we're at a crossroads as an industry. I think that we have to, uh, the best way that I can uh, get people to think about this is to think of the two major value propositions and in, 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 um, in two major buckets, so to speak. So one is efficiency and workflow. That can be gained in any lab or institution. Mm -hmm. And you have to determine how much value you're getting from that versus the investments you need to make. The other bucket would be, I think, precision medicine testing, which happens at a a much lower rate compared to the totality of pathology, but it's very high value. Patient decisions are made based on that precision medicine-based testing. And in the latter bucket, you don't have it widespread use. You have it at very specialized institutions. I, I think... You know, when we talk about how, will, will it be available today, I'm, I'm of the mindset, and I think a lot of the review that, that Vipul and I and, and others authored here was around the precision medicine testing component, that that is, that is, while the technology is here and we can show the proof point, it needs to start to get out into some testing centers and I even think pharma companies need to invest in, in the distribution in various testing centers to begin to set up more of a testing center-like model in, in the way that foundation mm-hmm. medicine pioneered in the early, you know, it's funny to say the early days of NGS because it really was about 10 years ago, but there were, there were early days in NGS where foundation had to create that model um, and then other institutions be, began to offer it. So I, I think we're on the kind of cusp on that. I don't know what you would think. Before, but it, yeah. before Vipul, I yep. mean, uh, weigh in. So, so you raise an interesting point and, uh, and basically would this be in a reference setting? And, right. uh, and, and, it's not a fear, but but it's a strong possibility that if they become the companion testing, which for a lot of time right now it's uh, it's a PDL uh, that we can try to do uh, in in different academic centers without mm-hmm. major investment, uh, but NGSs and and like you said, uh, mm-hmm. whole uh, exome or what have you, like GMBs, mm-hmm. uh, those. If, if those became the companion testing and the companion testing lock us in AI for even uh, a monochromic, right? Or a mm-hmm. monoplex, you can see where that become a problem. I haven't thought about that, but yeah, exactly. hopefully it's not an all or none where we have to send out. Oh every- my gosh, I love that you said that. So we, I just gave a talk this morning with Anil Parwani actually uh, at the Precision Medicine Leader Summit. And we've talked about this point very specifically. Um, and, and one can imagine a hybrid approach, a hybrid distribution model or a commercialization model uh, where the, the assay testing is done as it's done today. Let's say a new test comes out. Let's say Vipple and I are widely successful and we develop a, CD, a new CD8-based test for selecting patients. Uh, one can imagine that the, that the chemistry version of that is done as it is today in any, in any lab. Um, and that once the, and so you can get technical component fees for doing the lab testing, but then the slides are sent out to, to a place like Path AI or other labs where they scan it and provide back to you at your institution, the test result, which you open up, you review, 
visually you 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 kind of confirm the algorithm result and then you also bill for the professional component because you've done that part the only part that you haven't done is get the slide scanned and have the press the button to get the uh, result back um, now if you have your own slide scanner maybe you scan it and press the button but if you don't you send the slide just like you would send something to foundation so I, I think we can live in both worlds the the beauty of uh, cloud-based computing is that uh, if you have a scanner, perhaps you can upload it to the cloud. If you don't, you can send the slide uh, and still still gain the benefit of reviewing the test results yourself remotely. So that, that's it's And possible. I think it's it's yeah. encouraging, at least at this point, understanding that different scanner pro- platforms, there is mm-hmm. somewhat of a universality of the file uh, that Correct. you can do that. So it's not taken for people with uh, places with less ability to make serious investment. At least they, they do that part. Uh, very, very interesting. It's yeah. really a revolution. There'll be a lot of moving pieces. Vipal, yeah, so what do you mean to... to uh, yeah. No, no, no that, <laughs> that's fine. One thing I'll, I'll, I'll say in addition to what Mike said is I think we're also at a point where a lot of what we're doing right now is also somewhat trying to mimic what a pathologist is doing just to get the comfort level there of what digital pathology can do. But I think when we, the point where we will really start making a, 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 a big difference is when we start doing things, uh, one, um, where we're able to identify features of things that are just pathologists can't do visually. Um, and that will, I think, take us over that bar. And at that point, uh, pathologists obviously can be the ground truth for that, <clears throat> ground truth for that. but uh, response data, other, other data may become the ground truth rather than the pathologists once we cross that threshold. And I think that is also what's going to really drive uh, digital pathology into, into this type of, uh, you know, uh, NGS-like testing where we're just routine, routinely doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very, very good I mean, points. even, I think even in, even if we think about the early days of molecular and PCR testing for targeted, uh, targeted therapies, um, and now NGS testing, which is essentially recapitulating targeted therapies in a panel, in a panel-based setting, it really was the pharmaceutical industry that drove the need, the clinical adoption, the clinical necessity to identify patients, even in, in early molecular days, now in NGS days. And I, and I think Bipple probably shares this, and you know, we have a strong hypothesis that pharma will too drive the necessity uh, of, of AI-based digital pathology precision medicine testing, which is a little bit separate. Yeah, a little bit separate than just standard digital pathology that we talk about Correct. broadly. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I mean, uh, clearly what I, you, you hit exactly on the point. Uh, nobody is talking about, the idea is not just to scan and use computer screen and TV rather than microscope. That's that's right. going to be common and, and, and that's going to be actually also operator dependent. Some people would never leave the scope, uh, but uh, and we're undergoing that transition here. Uh, but we're talking about the added value, the precision uh, medicine exactly. part that, that yeah. we see it really uh, where the value yeah. is. And I think, Vipul, you, you bring a, 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 an important point and maybe can be a segue to, to our next uh, question, which is, so, so the ground truth so far is the pathologist, as we spoke, and uh, meaning uh, I will be annotating if, if uh, I'm lucky and you say, George, let's start uh, uh, an algorithm together on prostate cancer or bladder cancer. Uh, so I'll be looking at these slides and telling you my thoughts, and that's going to be the ground truth, and, and we'll take it from there. But the next step is, is, is what you're saying where the money is. The ground truth is how did the patient do? And, and taking the pathologist 
annotation out of the mix, uh, hopefully not completely. So, so is that, can you talk about that machine yeah. learning versus deep learning and, uh, mm. and explain? Yeah, that? absolutely. So I, I don't foresee um, uh, there being zero pathologist involvement. I, I, I think there's definitely different ways of looking at um, how we train the data and how we implement that data, right? So from a training perspective, um, when we talk about machine learning and deep learning, just to take a step back, you know, um, standard machine learning and we've been using machine learning for some time now where uh it's 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 a way of uh you know essentially developing algorithms but knowing what you're looking for uh and knowing what you want to measure and developing these type of machine learning models that are targeted to that uh, whereas when we when we shift over to deep learning based approaches essentially we don't we don't need to know or we don't need to know what uh, it needs to look like, or um, you know, what uh, what? Uh, so, give uh, give an example. If we're trying to detect tumor cells, uh, I don't need to know what a tumor cell looks like as long as I can get enough pathologists to train, provide enough labels, um, image labels of what a tumor cell looks like. A deep le learning model will figure it out. Whereas a machine learning model, I would need to you know at least have some prior features of what a tumor cell looks like to be able to train the model. So that's essentially where that difference is. But even going into the the uh, sort of the ground truth aspect of things, you know, we'll still need pathologists to train sort of these interpretable mo models at some, uh, to some extent. But then how that model integrates with all the features that get generated, how these features are combined into a, and then a subsequent model that can help us predict response. That may be a level that uh, that we, we may not have a ground truth for pathologists, but that's where response becomes the ground truth. Um, so, you know, looking at, you know, we, we may need pathologists to help us train a model to identify lymphocytes, but once we have done that and we know where all the lymphocytes are in the tumor microenvironment, then we can build a model on top of that to see, okay, this is the kind of pattern of lymphocytes that can help us predict a response. And that, that is something that we don't need a pathologist ground truth for. And that, that's almost like a discovery, right? It's not, mm -hmm. it's not like targeted NGS. So you're knowing exactly what versus whole genome. And that's uh, right. you don't know what you're looking for. And uh, very, very interesting. Uh, but uh, it's kind of you'd say we we will still have uh, we'll still have a role because uh, at least you have to say it at this stage. And there's one actually. Let me. Can I add to that as well, Doctor Nettle? I think not. Not so. Certainly, we'll have a role in training, as Vipul is sort of indicating. You know, doing the initial labeling at the level of like cells and tissue, and and then we and then we can look at outcomes. In, in discussions we've had with regulatory uh, agencies uh, recently around this type of technology, it's still important that a pathologist be involved in the very end of the process as well. That is to say that the test result work. Let's, let's take Vipple's example to an extreme where we have lymphocytes in certain uh, patterns that a machine identified. We didn't have a human identify it. And then we wanted to make that test available and we go through the regulatory agencies. The, the agencies still, and I, I think we all feel this way, want a human being to oversee the test want to have some sort of quality control that indeed that is a lymphocyte, indeed that is the right tissue type, uh, indeed the staining did look good enough. Um, maybe I can't identify the exact thing that the computer is giving us a result on, but I have some oversight to identify these edge cases and these, these problems that can be really anomalies um, down the road. So I think, I, I hope that uh, the listeners who may be new to this space don't envision a future anytime soon where it's literally a computer with no human involvement at all. I think that that is not how, how even the highest um, 
you know, complexity precision medicine testing is going to happen. We, in fact, even today, we still have humans looking at the quality controls and NGS testing and variant calling, and we make sure that it's accurate. Um, we'll have to have the same, same uh, part of that, I think, for, for uh, I mean, AI and pathology. I guess an analogy that is uh, more consistent with the current news is the phantom brake of uh, driveless uh, self-driving right. cars, right? Yes. You, still, you still want uh, somebody around that drive, uh, behind the steering wheel, and at least you still want a steering wheel. Uh, that's that, right. Yeah, I think it's very, I think that's a good analogy. I think that's probably accurate to how this will unfold. Well, wonderful. So let, let's finish up. Uh, just uh, we don't uh, enjoy the conversation, but uh, due to the time, uh, what is uh, where do you think uh, uh, we're heading in terms of like, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about spatial, about uh, TME, uh, especially in the PDL. Any uh, any uh, uh, pearls you can you can offer our audience uh, what to expect and and how how. Uh, where we're heading in that regard, especially in immune therapy. Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah. I mean, there's been, a, there, I think, one of the big drivers in, in the recent explosion in this work is IO therapy, tumor microenvironment testing. Um, and there's many, we've, we've published, um, even collaboratively with uh, Vipple and his team, um, work that shows uh, subtleties in the tumor microenvironment pre and post treatment can predict, uh, you know, outcome and things like that. So I think we'll just out of H&E, um, and others in IHC, and then the high complexity multiplex immunostaining, you know, I think is also showing us that there's a lot of value to be gained, um, in predicting patient response and selecting the right kind of uh, therapy. So where we are, I think right now is, is, um, and again, I think the point of this review to some extent, and the reason it was written by industry was to show just how this is being used in the context of drug development. And right now it is being used, I think, in exploratory phases, retrospective, it's on the cusp, if not already being used in prospective validations, which is the next step. And then from there, uh, we may even start to see some uh, potential approvals where this is going to be used um, clinically. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that in, in sometime soon, uh, we'll begin mm -hmm. to see the, the benefits from this clinically. I don't know, Vipo, what you, what you think about that. Yeah, I'll quickly add. I think the the very optimistic and uh, you know what we have seen so far is, you know, at least the algorithm, uh, the AI algorithms are actually empowering some of these IRC technologies to get even better and better. Mm. Uh, you know, more complex, more markers on the same slide, and both I think are playing off of each other, the, the staining technologies and the image analysis technology. So I think we'll continue to see the evolution of these technologies get better and better, more, more uh, consistent, more stable um, uh, staining of these multiplex markers. And, and I think what the other thing that we'll see is we're, we're going to get a point where imaging will just become a standard. Um, you know, what we have seen at least up to, uh, uh, up until now is, you know, digitizing slides was a, always an afterthought. And I think what we're trying uh, getting towards is now just more standard and good quality um, imaging so that we, we can use, uh, we can train our models moving forward with better quality data than what we have from maybe five years ago or 10 years ago that we're yeah, using. Yeah. And, just, and, and just to put a, a, a finer point too on where we are today, I, maybe many listeners may not know this, but there is a, a test available through now Castle Biosciences, but it was pioneered through Serenostics, which is a digital-based multiplexing test, which predicts risk from uh, Barrett's esophagus to esophageal, risk of developing esophageal cancer from Barrett's esophagus, which is a large unmet uh, medical need. 
and it's available now by send out in the reference laboratory setting. Uh, it's not making as much press as maybe foundation did in, in the, the days mm-hmm. of um, TMB, but it's there today. And it's starting to, they're starting to seek reimbursement. Um, they're starting to see adoption in GI in GI clinics as a result of it. So it's, it's that close to us today already. Um, and I, I could see more of this starting to evolve uh, over time. Well, I'm glad you mentioned reimbursement because that's going to be uh, an extremely important piece uh, that we yeah. struggled with for the longest time, uh, especially with NGS. And, and it's, been, uh, it's been delaying the progress and deployment in a lot of places. Uh, so hopefully we learned some lessons uh, there and uh, make the value propositions to third-party payers that, that this is uh, investment upfront uh, that will pay off for outcome and savings on wrong therapies and wrong exactly. patient selection. Well, uh, we I think we need to do another uh, podcast on this. Uh, this is uh, and uh, you guys have been terrific host, uh, terrific guest, and uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I'm sure our audience uh, will too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Neto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.